by, by, with humility and with power. Father, now as we turn to your word, we pray, God, that you would uh, open our eyes, Father, uh, to the things that are within us, God. Father, when we see the passions that are at war within us, God, we pray that you would expose them in our hearts. God, I pray that you would, um, you would bring peace where there is not peace in our body. You would bring harmony where there is not harmony in our body. God, that we would be a, a, a peaceful, harmonious body of believers. God, we pray that that same would be true for our homes. God, that our homes would not be full of, of anger and resentment and bitterness, but God, that they'd be full of grace and truth. Father, I pray that those of us in this room who are making themselves a friend to the world and therefore an enemy of you, God, I pray that you would call them back to yourself. God, I pray, I pray that you and your kindness, Lord, would just draw them by the sweetness of your Holy Spirit to your kindness, to your goodness and to your grace, God. Show them that you are better than this world, Lord. God, we know that they can't do it unless you do it for them by your Spirit, so I pray that you would do so. Open their eyes to their sin and let them submit themselves to the mighty hand of God. Let them turn from their sins, turn from their double-mindedness, God, that their pure devotion would be unto you. God, I pray that they would live that out, all of us would live that out, that we would not speak ill of our brothers and sisters, God, acting as we are the law giver and judge. Father, we know that there is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to kill and to save. So God, I pray that you would allow us as your people this morning to humble yourselves, humble ourselves under your, your word. We ask for your glory to be had this morning. I pray that all that is said and done and heard this morning would be done to your honor and glory. Father, purify your people, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the problems throughout Christian history is that the church has not always lived up to its calling. 17th century Jewish philosopher Spinoza, when looking at the church, said these words, I have often wondered that persons who make boasts of professing the Christian religion, namely love, joy, peace, temperance, and charity to all men, should quarrel with such rancorous animosity and display daily towards one another such bitter hatred that this, rather than the virtues which they profess, is the readiest criteria of their faith. When we think about how this man and many others throughout church history have looked at the church, has not seen the things that, that Christians are called to be marked by. Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, and self-control. But no, that's the opposite. Arrogance, anger, pride, lust, jealousy. That was a problem in the early church. Uh, that was a problem throughout church history. And sadly, it's a problem in many of the churches today. I pray this morning that if there is any of that in us this morning, that God in his kindness would, would, would work to purify us of it. It only is the Lord who, who does this. So if you want to follow along in the outline provided for you, I pray that we would work with an active faith against, number one, worldly passions. Number one, we want to work against worldly passions. Look again at verse 1 through 3 
Now remember, this is on, on the back, we looked at last week, this idea of two wisdoms, the, the worldly wisdom and the, the heavenly wisdom. There are really only two ways we're going to live. And when I say wisdom, I don't want you to think only knowledge. Knowledge puffs up. But wisdom is, wisdom is taking knowledge and therefore changing your life by it. So when I say we want to be wise and live with wisdom, we want to live in accordance with God's word in action. Not only a hearer, but a doer of the word. So this, uh, this kind of dovetails this idea of wisdom, false wisdom and true wisdom, heavenly wisdom and earthly wisdom. And then he says this in chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Now notice what, how he begins. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? He's not addressing the, the, the large populace in, in the world. No, he's, he's primarily addressing what? The, the, the 12 tribes of the dispersion. He's, he's addressing the church. He's saying there are quarrels and there are fights among you believers. He's addressing his, his family. And we know that the church should be known as a place of peace and love and harmony and unity. And so often what we hear of the church is it's full of anger, angry people, bitterness and strife. You know, I was raised in, in the Lutheran church. In the Lutheran church, we don't have business meetings. <laughs> we just got to go to church and come home and do our, do our thing. Um, well, I didn't know this, but there's a whole subset of, of, of uh, stories of bad Baptist business meetings. Uh, I've, I've heard that often when I become a pastor, about the, the fights that happen in a Baptist business meeting. And even when I became, became a pastor, the, the, the quibs and the jokes that I heard about going to a Baptist deacon meeting, about the anger that happens there. By God's grace, we have a pretty sweet fellowship here. And our, our, biz, our members' meetings, which you know, often are, are referred to as business meetings, are sweet, full of laughter and, and joy. And that's the way the most, of our, most of our meetings are as with our leadership, right? But many churches are not really known for love and peace, but they're actually known for that, right? I mean, it becomes a joke because it's become kind of general knowledge among the world that, that Baptists like to fight with each other. That is the worst thing you could possibly say of Christians, that we are, are, are prone to fight and argue with one another. Because what that says is that we are not living examples of Christ, living examples of the world. And even look at the imagery that he uses in, in the second, second question, kind of referring to why this, these fights and these quarrels happens. He says, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? These are the things that causes fights and quarrels are not happening of things that are brought from the outside in, but from the inside out. They're the passions in our own hearts. As we looked at last week, you know, or, or even in chapter, chapter three of James, the idea of the, where the tongue kind of reveals the, the bitterness and the fallenness of our humanity, right? Out of the heart comes adultery and, and sexual morality and anger and, and bitterness. But look at what, what James says. He says the problem is the war that's within us. There's a war that's happening right now. Are we going to trust God's word or are we going to trust the, 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 the worldly things in this life? There is a war every single day. 
And I think the, the, the main tool of the enemy is to make us think there isn't one. Just to kind of lull us to sleep. Peter, uh, in his epistle, says the same language. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. I mean, do we look at our, our daily fight to be holy as a fight, as a war against sin? Or are we kind of just lulled to think that we're in peacetime? Now, if you read a, a Christian book and you look at what pastors are told to say if they want to grow their church, they, 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 you want to make people feel good about themselves. That you want to make them feel that life is easy and they can accomplish things. Well, beloved, life is hard. And we are at war with the passions that are within our hearts and souls that is, that is trying to lure us to do things that would dishonor God. And James gives us a couple examples here. He says, you, do, you desire and you do not have, so you what? You murder. Now, is he really talking about murder, murder in the church? Well, depending on who you read, maybe. Uh, some scholars would say that he's addressing kind of those, those zealous um, Jews who used to go and persecute and kill Christians like Paul, who, were, who may be among the body who gave their life to, to faith. It could be we're referring to um, what would happen if, if you have the, the murderous desire and it goes unchecked. You know, you have anger, then anger when it kind of gives birth. He says that in chapter 1, maybe when it gets fully grown, it leads forth to death. So he could be referring that to that. I think what he's probably referring to is the, is the, the root of the, the venom that comes out of people's mouth. You know, the, the anger that I think is so common in the book of James. So in James chapter 1, that, that famous verse, be quick to listen and, and, and slow to speak and slow to become angry, for the anger of God does not produce the righteousness of God. It's how we speak. And again, in, in one. 26, and we most, mostly know 20, 26 and 27 for the idea of, of caring for widows and, and orphans. That is, that is pure religion. But right before that, it says pure religion is if anyone calls himself religious but does not keep a tight rein on his tongue. You think the same thing with James is, is addressing is anger. The key theme throughout this book, this anger that we often project on others. Now, we, we look at... Um, where this anger is. And, and what does James say? This anger is in you. And not just anger, he, he mentions uh, covet. He says you covet and you cannot obtain. To covet something is to want what somebody else has. Whether that's, we looked at this idea of jealousy last week, whether it's um, their appearance, uh, their bank account, their gifting, whatever it is, you want that, but you don't have it, so you... So you um, you fight and you quarrel. Why? The things that are in here. You know, this is not excusing someone else when they sin. You know, I think, you know, oftentimes we think about fights and quarrels and like, well, they deserve this. You know, when I, when I used to run a, a group home of, of teenage mothers, oh, those blessed five years, um, surrounded by women all the time. I love women, right? But teenage girls, eight of them at one time, that's a little much, Okay. And one of the things they would always say, they would say, Pastor Dave, or Mr. Dave, Mr. Dave, you have to uh, give respect to get respect, right? I'm only going to respect somebody else, one of my peers, unless they, they respect, respect me. There's this, this thing that 
we'll, we'll know that they sinned against you. We want to, we want to hold them accountable, but you still need to treat people with a certain manner of decorum and, and decency. You know, people sin against us. And then what happens is that we respond sinfully to that sin, which turns and causes the other person to continue to sin against us. Then that vicious cycle continues. You know, our battle is ultimately not against flesh and blood. Our battle is not against the person who is in front of us, but it's against the, the spiritual forces of darkness in this world that are waging war against your soul and waging war against somebody else's soul. You know, sometimes we only look at that internally. We think that the problem is maybe, okay, I get it, it's my problem, I have these issues. But beloved, everybody is struggling with something. And sometimes you're angry and mad at someone because the, the, their, their desires and their passions are winning. And instead of being angry and mad and, and jealous and angry, what you should do is you should be praying that God would open their eyes, that they would change. And even, even as he goes on, he says that you, know, you don't have because you don't ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Well, what's he referring to here? Well, if you go back to chapter 1, he, he says the same thing in, in chapter 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without approach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, not with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the seed, is driven and tossed by the wind. What person does not receive that he will receive anything, that should not suppose that he receive anything from the Lord? He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. So when we ask God to give us wisdom to live a holy life, to live a righteous life, but we ask with with dual motives, or to, to ask God, give us something so that we could spend it on our, on our lusts and on our passions. We should not suppose that we should get anything from the Lord. We are double-minded. And I would see this here in chapter, chapter 4. We ask with motives, the things of God, to serve ourselves. I, I think that this passage, if you would just spend time with yourself and search and analyze the things inside of you, you would realize that a lot of the problems in your life when it comes to relational things, that horizontal relationship with your brothers and sisters, is because of you. It's because of how you're interpreting things, how you're looking at things. If I can help uh, marriages here, uh, just for a second, if you are married, you are going to fight. (laughs) You are going to quarrel at some time with one another. How do you get through that? Well, I'd say you get through that by doing what? By realizing there's a lot of sin within you. And maybe not projecting your sin upon your spouse, but looking inside your own heart. Number one, we want to work against that worldly passions that war within us. They they are real. We want to fight against them. But we also want to fight against worldly friendship. Fight against worldly friendship. And we see this in verses 4 and 5. Now, James has a very strong language here. It was, it was interesting while I was even reading it. I, I almost, I'm not sure if you felt this, but I just kind of felt a heaviness when you read this text. It's a very strong uh, admonition to the church. Verse 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that the friendship with the world is the enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That's strong language. 
But that is language that is very common to the Scripture. The way that, that God often views himself is he, he views himself as the, as the beloved of Israel. The betrothed, Israel is, is their betrothed. There's this marriage relationship where God is, the, is our husband and, and we are the, the bride. We see that even in, in Ephesians chapter 5 where Christ is our, is our bridegroom and we are the bride of Christ. There's this, that level of intimacy should happen between Christ and his people. And what's happening here in the church in James's day is that they have dual devotion. They're loving God, but they're loving the world. It's as, it's as, it's as if a, a, a wife is giving herself to two men. That's the language. That's the picture, right? And it's, it's caused to, to, to provoke things in us, things that are that, that are that, that should, should rise up and scream, this should not be. That's what James is, is saying. So for us, are we married to Christ? Is, is Christ our one and only? Does he get all our devotion and all our allegiance? Because notice what he says. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whoever makes himself a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. What does it look like to be a friend of the world? Well, first, what it, what it doesn't mean, right? What it doesn't mean is that you can't have non-Christian friends. Uh, we should have relationships with those people who do not believe uh, in Christ. That could be some of you here today who are just trying to figure out what this Christianity means. Well, we, we as Christians want to befriend and love and have sweet relationship with, with non-Christians. Well, because God so loved the world, so his people should so love the world. Why? So that they can uh, believe that Jesus Christ did not um, died for them, so that they would not perish and have everlasting life. And even the Lord Jesus, before he ascended into heaven, said, As the Father has sent me, I now send you into the world. We are sent into the world by the Son of, of God. So we're called to have relationships with non-Christians. The second thing I would say, does your life look like someone who knows God? If your life does not look like someone who is walking with God, you may be a friend of the world. So for your how you view your money, how do you view your money? Do you, do you spend it on your passions? Do you spend it on your comfort? Do you spend it on, on recreation? Do you spend it on the Lord's work? You know, I've, I've heard statistic after statistic over my years as a pastor, the average Christian gives 2% of their income away. Just, just go back and look at your checkbook and say, okay, what do I really value? Your spending will reveal that to you. Or entertainment. Uh, what are you watching? And not only what are you watching, but what is the amount of the things that you are watching? Does that look like a life of a Christian who wants to give all their devotion and all their, their love to Christ? Or does it look like someone else in the world? I read a stat recently that said the average American will spend six years of their life watching television. You know those last years of your life when you're just fighting for a few more years, right? And you start looking back and all the regret that you had, the things that you did not done. Right, six years. Would you just sacrifice six years of your life with your children? Sac- sacrifice six years of your life with your grandchildren or your parents? Maybe we should turn off the TV a little bit more. Friendship. Who are you allowing most to influence your life? You know, bad company corrupts good character. Uh, recently, I was talking to to a young lady who says 
the, the, the friends that she chose caused her to drift from the Lord. She didn't have friends who were pushing her towards Christ. She had friends that were pulling her from Christ. So maybe you need to do a friend inventory. Do I have the people in my life who are going to push me towards the Lord? Or time. How do you spend your time? What is the greatest use of your free time? When you have three hours on a Saturday afternoon, what do you do? Now, I'm not saying everyone loves a good Saturday afternoon nap, and I'm saying take that nap, right? We are human beings who need rest. Amen. But what else are you doing? Are you quick to, to call someone, to encourage someone, to write a card, uh, to visit a widow or shut-in, or to share the gospel with, with your neighbor, uh, to play catch with one of your children? What are you doing with your time? And what I'm trying to get at is when we take an honest analysis of our life, are we friends with God or are we friends with the world? Because James was speaking to the church and says, Church, you are adulterous people. You say you love God, but you love the world. Do you not know when you love the world, you are an enemy of God? That's what James is saying. Now, I don't know where you are at in your life and your walk with the Lord, but feel the weight of that and ask yourself, am I living not just what you say you believe, but are you living? Not a hearer only, but a doer of Are you living as if you are a friend of God? You know, all the things that, that I'm kind of talking about, our behaviors, those are fruits. And how much time we watch television, you know, how much t- where, where, where we spend our money, that's all the fruit of what? Of the roots of our hearts. That's what that's what. James is trying to get, he's trying to get to the roots of your heart to to expose that. And and the root of all of it is that we don't love God enough. We don't rejoice and savor in what God has done for us in Christ. Because we're giving our love and devotion to another. So he says, do you not know that God yearns jealously? over the spirit he has made to dwell within you. That could mean one of two things. I think it probably means both. This, this idea of Genesis 2-7, where it says God breathed in to the man and, and gave him life. I, I think that we need to understand that God is our creator and that he, has, he is jealous over the time he has given us here in this life, as we are creatures and he is our creator. But he also has given us a new life. And we see that in 1 Corinthians Chapter 6, that we have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. And he yearns jealously that we would be people who love Christ. Why are you loving the world, he says. Number three, we want to work against worldly pride. Work against worldly pride. The text goes on. Verse 5, it says, Do you not suppose it is no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over his spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Uh, this is quoted several places in the New Testament. It's really a, a kind of a, a modification of Proverbs three thirty four. It says, towards the scorners, he is scornful. Excuse me, but to the humble, he gives favor. Pride and obstinance towards God is the root of our problem. Every time we 
uh, we, we point blame uh, and we are blaming something else, we are exposing our pride. We are saying that the problem does not lie within me, but the problem lies out there. But when we humble ourselves, God gives us more grace. Not only the grace of salvation, where the free gift of God is eternal life to those who, who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But he also does what? He gives you the grace of the wisdom that helps you live the life you're called to live. Because what God demands from you, he gives to you. So when we are saved by the Spirit, we walk by the Spirit. When you call upon him and give him undivided, you're an undivided heart, he will respond by giving you the wisdom that you need to live for him. And so much of our life is spent living in our pride. I can tell you time after time after time in my own life how my pride has led me away from the Lord, has led me away from friendship with the people of God because I am obstinate and fighting against someone. I am thankful early on in my marriage, the voice of the Holy Spirit, every time my wife and I have a marital disagreement, we don't fight. We are a perfect couple. Um, but every time we argue and have that relationship, the Lord just kind of whispers in my ear, you know, Dave, as soon as you humble yourself, this fight will be over. And every time I, I, I don't listen to that voice, the, the, the fight rages on and escalates. But as soon as I humble myself and realize that my part of the problem in our, in our relationship, things calm and unity develops. So I pray that we would not be prideful against the Lord, but that we would be humble and submissive. And this is where James is going in this next point. Is the, we want to work against worldly faith. Work against the worldly faith. And this is what James is trying to get the whole book at. right? The whole book is pointed to those who, who say they have faith, but don't live it out. So James is saying, those of you who say you have faith, but don't live it out, here is what God is calling you to do. In verse 7, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves there before the Lord, and he will exalt you. What you see right here is a call to repentance. And I don't know where, where you are in your, in your walk with the Lord this morning. And there's some of you who may not call yourselves Christians. Uh, well, the Bible says this. Those of you who call yourselves, who don't call yourself a Christian, the Bible says that, that God is our creator. So you have to come to grips with how was the world created. Well, we as Christians believe that God created the world and that man fell into sin. So we explain the problems in our world because of, of the sin of man. So we believe the core of every human being is not goodness, but but evil and sin. This is what James is trying to get at. The sin is in your own heart. All of us are depraved. And therefore, all of us need a Savior and a, a Redeemer. So God in His kindness sent forth His Son. Born of God, so He was perfect, and yet born of a woman, so that He could identify with man. So when Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life, no deceit was found in His mouth, no evil thoughts were found in His heart, Right? He died on the cross, paying for the sins of anyone who would put their trust in Him. 
He was dead and buried, and God raised him from the dead. Seated him at the right hand of God where he is ever living to intercede for his people. So if you are not a Christian, that's what Christians believe. Christians believe that God is creator, that we are sinners, that Jesus Christ is the only Savior, and that if you put your faith and your trust in him, you'll be saved now and for eternity. So this, this text right here is for you, that you would submit yourselves to God, that you would stop being the Lord of your own life, stop acting as the creator, but you would be a creature and humble yourself before mighty God. But this text is also for some of you who have claimed Christ for a number of years, who may have said, yeah, I'm a Christian, but you really don't give your life to Christ. You have a duality in your life. You say that you love God, but if you looked at your time and your money and, and, and how, you, how you live, the reality is, is that you probably love this world more than you love God. And what God is calling you to this morning is to submit yourselves to God. Turn from living as a friend of the world and turn to God. Did you hear what the text says? If you draw near to God, He will draw near to you. The one who spoke the world into existence, the one who, who is, who is all powerful and all, um, almighty, who's all knowing, all wise, this Almighty God will come to you if you draw near to Him. What a sweet promise. Those of you who are, who are living in that cycle again and again and again, where you, you want to love the Lord, but you fall into sin. You want to love the Lord, but you fall into sin. Today, submit yourselves to God. Come to Him. And He will give you the wisdom that you need to live for Him. But this text is also a, a reminder for all of us who are tempted to go astray. There are so many godly men and women in our church. And can I just tell you what a gift, what a gift it is to pastor this congregation. You are some of the sweetest, most godly people I have ever met. I was sitting in my office this morning and um, people were kind of walking and just kind of coming into church. And uh, as people walked in, I just... So just by the Holy Spirit was just filled with joy because the people who were walking by my, my door were some of my favorite people in the world. Well, that's because God has, has, has given us a heart for each other. So praise God that we have a people who are, who are walking with Christ. But do not be deceived that you may not be led astray. Beloved, we are not at peacetime. We are at war. And there are passions that are at war within you. And I think for us as a congregation, as we have experienced a little bit of growth, the passions that are going to be raging now are going to be different passions in the body than even four months ago. So we have to be aware that the passions that are waging war within us are always going to be there. We are not at peacetime until the Lord calls us home. I pray that you would repent you would turn to the sweet God who, who saved you. That we would fight against a dual faith. That Christ would be our, our husband. He would be our bridegroom. He would give all our devotion and all our, our love. Well, lastly, we want to work against worldly judgment. Work against worldly judgment. And I think what James is doing here, it's kind of an odd place to put this, this kind of these two sentences. I think what he's trying to do, he's trying to say, okay, Here's what I'm, I'm calling you to. Now apply it. 
which I think is what we should all do, right? When you come to church on Sunday, it's not, hey, I, the preacher gave a good word on Sunday. Well, if, 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 if I preach my heart out on Sunday and you live the same way you did on Saturday, on Monday, well, then maybe my preaching wasn't that full of fire. Maybe my preaching wasn't full of the Holy Spirit because it did not convict you to, to live your life in change. We don't want to be hearers of the word. We want to be doers, hearers only, but doers of the word. So this, look, look at how James wants you to apply this text. Verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a, a judge. Very quickly, what this does not mean is that we can't practice church discipline. Because Paul was very clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It says, what do I have to do with judging outsiders? It is those inside the church that you are to judge. God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. So part of our responsibility as Christians, those of you who have gone through our a membership interview with one of our elders, you know that one of your responsibilities is to exercise the keys of the kingdom. We open the door to new members and we open the doors to let those who are living in a way that is contrary to Christ. That is our responsibility as a congregation. And we have to do that. So James is not saying judge, not judging in that way. Because where two or three are gathered in judgment, the Father says that there am I among them. So Matthew chapter 7, the Lord Jesus tries to explain this. He says that we are called to judge in some ways. So hear this carefully. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Judge not that you may not be judged. For the judgment you pronounce will be judged by what you will be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. It doesn't say never judge. It says when you judge, know that, that same judgment is going to come back on you. So just understand, when you judge others, that same judgment, same, that same measuring rod is going to be measured back to you. And then he says this, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. This is the same thing James is saying. Listen, you have passions that are at war within you that's causing fights and quarrels. Deal with yourself first. Confess your sin, admit it, and then help your brother. Help your sister see how they may be erring themselves. James kind of turns this. So we're, we're called to judge, but we're called to judge in, in, in a way that would honor the Lord. Understand there is one lawgiver and, and judge. So we, we, we understand that with, when the Lord Jesus was speaking on the Sermon on the Mount, he said, you have heard that it was said, do not murder. But I say to you, do not be angry with your brother. This is the same idea I think James is capitalizing on. Now we don't know if James was there, but if you read the Sermon on the Mount, you read the book of James, you're going to find a lot of parallels and a lot of similarities, right? Being that, that James was the half-brother of Jesus, we can assume that he was probably there or he heard things from Jesus' own mouth during his, his lifetime. But right after Jesus says, those who are angry with, do not be angry with your brothers, he, he kind of gives a clarification of what that looks like. He says, those who say, you fool, 
Those who, who speak down about somebody else and, and name call them, call them a fool, are in danger of the fire of hell. So, if you are a Christian and you are made in the image of God, you've been born again by His Spirit, I would encourage you not to name call. Seems pretty simple, right? Things you teach in, in first grade to kids, right? Don't name call. Don't name call your president. Don't, don't name call your, your congressman, right? Don't, don't name call your spouse. Because when you do that, the Bible says you are in danger of the fire of hell. Because what's inside your heart at that moment is you becoming a lawgiver and a judge. You're not submitting to the law, submitting to the judge. You become one. And you're saying, I am elevating myself over you. Be careful. Be careful. Because we don't want to be like uh, was talked about at the beginning. We don't want to be known for our jealousy and our selfish ambition. We want to be known for our peace. We want to know for our love. We want to be known for our mercy and our compassion. So let me just encourage you with this one last thought. As the people of God at Park Baptist Church, I pray that we would be known as charitable people. That we would be charitable. The way we speak about other churches, I pray that we are charitable. Now, the way we speak about those in authority, I pray that we are charitable. The way we speak about our spouses, I pray that we are charitable. The way we speak about our children, I pray that we are charitable. The way we speak about one another, I pray that we are charitable. Believing the best about them. Because one day we're going to answer to the one lawgiver and judge who is able to save his people, who trust them, but who's also able to destroy. So let me read these words again by James because I think they're so poignant. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Father, as we come to a difficult text this morning, God, I pray that all of us here would understand that um, that we don't want to be friends with the world as this passage states. We don't want to be your enemies, God. Father, we know that we have passions that wage war within us that are pulling and drawing us towards things that dishonor you. God, I pray that all of us would just submit ourselves under your hand, God, that we would humble ourselves knowing that you and your kindness will exalt us on the last day. Make us a charitable and merciful people. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.